We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Um, so welcome to the Public Health Podcast. I'm strangely doing the intro because Laurie is not here right now. Um, but today we have Stephanie Perotta, who is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and researcher. Stephanie has got a PhD, which we're going to talk to her a lot about and pick her brain about her research into PCOS, um, but continues to do postdoctoral research at Monash University. Uh, She's also the founder of Womanly Nutrition, um, where she practices privately and helps lots of women with not just PCOS, but endometriosis and other fertility issues. So welcome, Stephanie. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Tamara. And um, yeah, that was an excellent introduction. Thanks. You did a great I job. Thought, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I thought that was very well done, Joe. <laughs> First time off the mark. Yeah. Um, I mean, amazing, obviously, your bio, everything that you're doing. And I think um, for our audience, uh, lots of us are health professionals, lots of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we absolutely see lots of women um, with PCOS. Would you be able to give the audience an up-to-date understanding of PCOS in general, what it actually is, so that we're all on the same page? Yes, excellent question. So polycystic ovary syndrome um, is a multi-system chronic condition, okay, that affects about um, 11 to 13% of people in Australia who are of reproductive age. Now, we consider that between 18 and 45 years. In saying that, though, PCOS doesn't, doesn't just automatically stop once you um, are unable to conceive anymore. It does continue for the whole lifespan, okay, and that's a really an important um, mm. con- consideration and we don't really have that much um That's a really gap in terms of the um, menopausal space and PCOS. But um, what causes PCOS? Um, We don't really fully know, but we think it's multifactorial. So one of them is genetics. So it's likely that your mother or your grandmother um, had some forms or symptoms of it. um, And it's likely that they um, do when when the woman or the person with PCOS was being um, grown as a fetus, that there were changes in what we call the um, hypothalamic pituitary ovulatory axes. So basically, the changes in the way that the um, the, the axes between or the connection between the pituitary gland and the um, ovaries, and what they do, how they secrete, and the hormones that are secreted, and um, we think that that could be influenced by. PCOS um, um, coming on. We also know, though, that it is highly um, characteristic to have what we call insulin resistance. So the body is making insulin, which is the hormone that takes up the sugar from our blood to the rest of the body for energy. 
um, but it's just not being recognized as well. And there's a real range. Some people might not have any symptoms, um, whilst other people may have to the other end of the scale where they actually have been diagnosed with diabetes. Um, so we know that that is um, a sign of it as well. Um, and um, it's also typically... Um, people tend to have kind of what we call high high androgens or hyperandrogenism. So they're quote-unquote male-like hormones, although um, women still have um, these hormones, but they're in higher amounts. And so sometimes people tend to, um, well, most of the time people present with, for example, facial hair or changes in um, bald um, or hair on the, on the, on the head or um, additional kind of fat or adiposity around the abdominal area that it's a bit hard to shift sometimes um in a good way sometimes people can find it really easy to put muscle on and they can get strong um, quicker than maybe other other than other women that they know so it's actually kind of a positive out of it um but how it's uh diagnosed is two out of three um symptoms so one of them is that there is a um, lack or irregular ovulation and so what that means is that there's no ovulation or someone is ovulating less than eight cycles on average per year. Okay. Um, the other is that there's cystic ovaries and that's um, more than 20 cysts on each ovary. There's also um, for the radiographer or, you know, to, to look at, there's also per volume um, measure, but yeah, normally about 20 or more ovaries, uh, sorry, cysts per ovary. And the other criteria um, that someone may present with is that hyperandrogenism, whether it's clinically, so how someone's presenting, so maybe they have the facial hair, for example, or there's um, um, reduction or acne or um, skin tags, these types of things, or that you can see it in their in their blood work. And so someone can actually present to um, in clinic, you know, whether at GP or uh, you know a, a wonderful physio. Um, having two out of these conditions and still having PCOS. So the name itself, polycystic ovary syndrome, is a bit confusing because someone might not actually have cystic ovaries and have the syndrome. The um, guidelines for PCOS, the clinical guidelines, the latest ones are 2018, but they are about to be updated. The 2023 ones are pretty much released anytime now. And um they now used to be that lifestyle was the number one treatment, okay, with or without medication. Now there's more studies to show that lifestyle is very important with PCOS and should definitely be considered for everyone, no matter what they what body type or what weight they present in with PCOS. Um, but medication is a little bit higher on the list um, in terms of importance. So it's not just the first line um, treatment. They probably should be both at the same time. What medication, okay. Steph? Yeah, so the most common would well, obviously, and like anything, it depends on what the person's health goals are um, and what, what what stage of life they are. But someone, um, which I didn't present with, there are actually four different types of PCOS. So we call them PCOS phenotypes and they all present in different ways, which is why it makes it hard for health professionals to kind of diagnose it sometimes. So the four different um, types of PCOS we call phenotypes, three of them, um, are underlined by insulin resistance and then they vary depending on if there's hyperandrogenism or if there's obligatory dysfunction um, but um, depending on the person's goal and what type of PCOS and symptoms are they wanting to really um, better manage that's really what's impacting metform um, medication so one of the ones that's probably the most prescribed is what we call metformin which technically is actually a diabetes medication 
Um, but this helps with the insulin resistance side of things. Um, and so that tends to really better um, all of the symptoms of PCOS that are driven by insulin resistance. And it's important to realize that insulin resistance feeds into the changes in hormones um, and inflammation and um, the hormones inf impact the insulin resistance. So it's all a bit like a bit of a ball. They all kind of impact each other, right? Um, so metformin is the most common. Um, and um, the latest guidelines recommend that it's not really given to people who are pregnant, okay? But um, it is safe to do, it, and otherwise it's a pretty pretty safe drug, um, and that will help people um, really reduce cravings, improve the insulin sensitivity, which in itself can help with a lot of the PCOS symptoms that they um, experience, may help with changes in weight, um, may not, um, and it may help with ovulation and regularity as well. Um, then most of the other symptoms, um, a lot of, of the other medications are, um, let's say, ovulation induction based. For example, if someone was wanting to improve their fertility um, and um, there are a couple of other medications, but they really depend on the person, how they respond to it. Um, and it is always recommended to go and see um, an endocrinologist around this as well, or a gynecologist if needed. Um, sometimes a GP can do it, but if they're not really a women's health GP, you're not really um, specializing in this space, definitely a specialist is recommended um, because of the multidisciplinary nature um, of PCOS, it does tend to then need that multidisciplinary care um, in a healthcare team. Stephanie, can I just, can we backtrack for a moment? Yeah, yeah. I think the the insulin piece is really interesting and I don't think well understood. Certainly, I don't. <laughs> um, can you um, maybe just give us a little bit more detail on what we understand as to a why? Um, there's the link with um, the hypopituitary axis, no, hypothalamic pituitary axis, and um, the insulin issue and then um, how that interacts with hormones? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not an endocrinologist, so I'm not going to be super detailed about this. But basically um, insulin, which is the hormone that's released from the pancreas to uptake the blood from the, um, the sugar in the blood to the rest of our body, that signaling from the cells in the body um, which is a receptor is kind of impeded. It's not. It's not really working as well, and so as a result, depending on this, where the person's at, how sensitive they are to, or how what, what their insulin sensitivity is looking like, their body starts to make more insulin um, to kind of compensate for that. So this higher level of insulin in the blood kind of does alter how the liver functions. Okay, and um, and what's made from the liver, etc. That then impacts um, the it, it signals to the brain as well, um, particularly the hypothalamus, which is that p-sized um, part of the brain in the middle of the brain, um, to change uh, the hormones that are excreted, particularly luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Now, typically with PCOS, luteinizing hormone is elevated. Same with follicle stimulating hormone. In someone who um, has more regular cycles, luteinizing hormone 
is lower, but spikes to trigger the ovulation, okay, that happens from the ovaries. But that spike doesn't happen anymore because it's always elevated. Luteinizing hormone is always elevated, and so is FSH. Not as um, yeah, not as not FSH. Uh, sorry, not um, FSH is also elevated. So because of that lack, because of that increase, then that's tell, that's happening because of the pituitary um, uh, axes. There's never ovulation that takes place, and so that then leads to, um, in some cases of PCOS, um, cystic ovaries. And then that yeah, itself right. feeds back and feeds back into the insulin side of things. And yeah, um, and also um, there's also that change in androgens as well, which also feeds back into the pituitary. So it all kind of works together. Yeah, we also know what contributes to this, which I didn't actually mention before, was lifestyle factors itself. So there is some research to show that people who may have experienced a traumatic event, whatever that is, um, they are they may have changes in their hormones or can kind of contributes to the stress and cortisol, um, which is the the stress um, hormone, which can contribute as a puzzle to all of this happening. Um, it would also we also know that people who are maybe at, um, more sedentary or less active um, for what their body needs, with all the other factors that contribute to PCOS, maybe it's um, you know a piece of the puzzle as well. Maybe, again, um, without someone even knowing, but maybe they have a higher um, saturated fat um, intake, high salt intake, low fiber intake, um, less antioxidants, these types of things. And so it won't be the sole reason for why they get PCOS. It's never someone's fault that they get PCOS. Um, but it's one of the puzzles, um, piece of the puzzle to it. And so all of these kind of lead into this cascade of um events that can lead to someone having having PCOS we also think as well that the, the environment so um you know maybe our food systems um the chemicals in in the air these types of things probably are also leading to it we're still getting more information about this it's so complex so many things so many so things, many things. So complex exactly yes so you know for an adolescent girl right as they, uh, you know, can we start to look? I mean, as physios, we're like, oh, they've got a bit of acne. Oh gosh, is there any hair anywhere? Any excess hair? Like, <laughs> yes. um, and obviously, the whole thing about weight and PCOS, I feel, has been quite debunked. Like, <clears throat> you can go either way, um, or I imagine be even of normal weight. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else, I suppose, clinically that's predictive of someone being more at risk? You said already genetics. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So someone with yeah, if, if genetics definitely. So um, it's interesting that you got the adolescent um, side of things. So that is um, an interesting time because obviously things are probably irregular anyway during the adolescence. As someone starts to get into um, a regular period and start to have their period, um, it's important to realize that it that there are specific recommendations. Um, you do have to wait, you know, a few years um, to see if someone um, has PCOS. You can't really just uh, diagnose them um, straight away. Um, so some of the signs maybe, let's say, depending on menarche. So if someone is one to three years after having um, signed their period, signs of PCOS include a menstrual cycle that is either less than 21 days or is more than 45 days, okay? Another sign is that if they are more than 
um, one year after menarche, but they have more than 90 days of a cycle, then that probably shows something. Um, um, other signs, of, you know, uh, mostly it's facial hair. That's really indicative. Um, but acne, as you said, Joe, is, yes, one of the symptoms, but um, it's kind of putting a puzzle together, you know, and then you, you, you ask about their family and um, they might not have PCOS diagnosed, but maybe they're showing certain symptoms of it and these types of things. Um, ultrasound isn't really the best for teenage years because it's hard to pick up. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you generally have to wait until um, regular cycles as well. But that's an interesting one. So that's kind of what to look at. If someone's telling you in the clinic, you know, particularly, you know, if, even later on in life, but um, I'm, I'm, I've increased my weight really quickly. I don't really know why. Um, I don't have regular cycles. Yes, I sometimes have, um, I have facial hair to the point where I need to get laser. I um the big one like carb cravings even if even when I am um like just after having dinner or lunch I'm still hungry um I'm sleepy a lot of the time and um, these are all kind of signs of okay maybe you need to get checked out it might not be PCOS it might be even you know other hormonal um, irregularities mm -hmm. but it's important to get checked out you know um, these things are not um good for our health really and it's important that Unfortunately, a lot of people get diagnosed um, when they're trying to conceive because uh, they don't know, you know, or it has, hasn't been picked up um, by a health professional. So it's important. PCOS is really important. It doesn't matter if someone wants to conceive or not. You know, it doesn't matter where they are in their life. It's important to manage it. Um, and then it's always recommended to go see a GP that specializes or understands PCOS or women's health in general. Um, and if someone feels like they have been, you know, not to the, not to the fault of the health professional, they're probably just doing it um, from their training and their understanding of, you know, particularly GPs, they have to know a lot of things like we, we're not gods, we're humans. Um, you know, if, if you feel like you didn't get, you weren't heard enough or you wanted a second, a second, third, fourth opinion, then do do that just to get reassured. Um, yeah, they don't don't if if there's something in you, like we don't know, you know your body, you know, the most. Um, so if you if there's still something there that's tingling and saying, no, something's not quite right, or I didn't feel heard or validated, do go to someone um that yes, knows a little bit more about women's health in general, um, to get uh, opinions. I'm still trying to remember what happens in a period and which hormones are doing what. Like it's <laughs> yeah. So, so complicating. Um, because I've come in late on this, I don't know how much we've talked to or have we gotten into the like nutrition part of things oh, no. and the influence. No. Okay. Are we going there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would you like me to tell, describe that now? Well, you, uh, unless you guys have any other, Joe, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before she got into that? Because no, go for it. Because I think that just rolls into your research, doesn't it? Really. So yeah, if you yeah. if you talk talk to us about that, and then just tell us all about your research, that's perfect. yes, please, yeah, please. Yeah. please. Oh, cool. No, I've um, got so many questions, but I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I I'm going to start with research in the nutrition space for nutrition therapy and PCOS. 
is very much still emerging, okay? There is no high-quality evidence for it, unfortunately. We need more studies on it. Dietary dietary studies in itself tend to have a lot of limitations. Um, they need to be really large numbers, um, long time. And um, we've recently got boosting a boost funding for PCOS, but generally it doesn't tend to get, unfortunately, as much funding in the recent years. So um, really from a nutrition perspective to, to better manage PCOS, it is an important part just as movement, you know, or exercise is an important part, psychology is an important part, et cetera. Um, but there is no one diet that is like the PCOS diet. And even though it might be marketed on social media, et cetera, that way, that is not the case. Okay. The best diet for someone with PCOS is one that is easily to implement, is culturally appropriate, follows their preferences for food, promotes a healthy relationship with food in their body. And generally speaking, is a way of or a dietary pattern that is what we call anti-inflammatory. Okay, so it's predominantly plant-based. That doesn't mean it's vegan. Um, it's predominantly plants with some um, animal products or meat if someone chooses to. There's a moderate amount of fish, red meat, chicken. There's some dairy in there if someone um, chooses to have that or is able to tolerate it. Um, but, but it's predominantly plants. Um, and that obviously that includes animal proteins like legumes, um, lentils, nuts, seeds, these types of things, tofu, tempeh. Um, so one of the ones, kind of these anti-inflammatory diets that tends that, that is, tends to be picked up is the Mediterranean diet, which has been shown to have many beneficial effects, um, not just in PCOS, but also let's say for diabetes or hypertension. Um, uh, there's also studies to show that a mixture between what we call the DASH diet and um, which is pretty much an anti-inflammatory way of eating as well, but they focus less on extra virgin olive oil and a further reduction of salt intake as well. And there's also no um, influence or, or emphasis, sorry, on alcohol, okay, the, um, for the DASH diet compared to the Mediterranean diet. Um, is it, The DASH diet as well is also very good for PCOS. And actually there's some studies to show that it's pretty much the Mediterranean diet, but take away, as I said before, no, there's no alcohol, even a further reduction in salt, and um, there is no need for extra virgin olive oil or as, as much as of an em emphasis of it. Um, and I suppose it's kind of appropriate as well because people with PCOS, because of that insulin resistance um, and changes in androgens um, and that inflammatory side of things, um, the inflammation uh, markers, they are, there is an increased risk of not only diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease. And, and so people are more likely, one of the typical things of PCOS that I see is that there's changes in, for example, cholesterol levels, um, reduction in that, that good cholesterol, HDL, slowly increase in reduction, uh, slowly increase in the bad cholesterol like the LDL and increases in total cholesterol, which in itself give also um, increased risk of cardiovascular disease later on. So from a nutrition perspective, we can also help with that. Mm. Um, can I ask before you go on to the yeah. very it's all very interesting what alcohol in the Mediterranean diet is okay then what oh yeah so the Mediterranean diet says that alcohol is good like or some moderate alcohol that's organic is good particularly red wine Chianti you know yeah. from Florence Chianti yes. everyone can drink Chianti yeah, have a bottle I don't know what the auntie is what's the auntie Chianti Chianti red wine oh <laughs> Happy Halloway, all where the, all the good red wine comes from. <laughs> it's lovely. Yes, it's a funny one. So Mediterranean diet is really known for, um, like one of the things is alcohol, right, and red wine. <laughs> but what we actually know now from 
health studies um, is that really, even from a hormonal perspective, doesn't matter, just not PCOS himself, but, you know, alcohol really is not good mm. <laughs> for health in general, like really. Uh, but if you choose to have alcohol, it's best to have um, one, maybe two wines. Um, and that's a standard wine of no more than 120 mils um, per sitting. It is organic if you can get it. It's yeah, red wine. Um, it's you. It's taken or enjoyed over time, over food. Um, and um, there's at least two days of alcohol-free days in the week. Um, but that's if you choose to have alcohol. To be honest, probably would be better not to. Um, it, yes, there are heaps of flavonoids, which are kind of these anti-inflammatory properties in the red wine, but there are many foods that are more rich you know, for example, raspberries or avocado, these other things, um, a lot of herbs and spices um, that are just as good and don't give you kind of the inflammatory effects um, that can come with with alcohol, which let's be honest, alcohol is yummy if you enjoy it and it can be very easy to go over that one to two 120 mils, you know, um, serving sizes. So, so that's what's recommended. Another thing that I really like about the Mediterranean diet um, is that it is it does very much promote this kind of the social aspect around food and and enjoying it you know having um you know, having a homemade meal and it's kind of like if you can get locally grown produce that's great if you can't obviously you know we're not in, all in Italy and the country fields <laughs> going. um but you know to to enjoy the food because that's good from a social perspective it optimizes your mental health um and it really promotes movement as well which is really good so these principles are all excellent and we know that movement um is very important with pcos just as much really as with nutrition and, and both of them should, should come together um so i digress a little bit and i will come actually i can come back to the you know, exercise or movement recommendations um but basically, it is an anti-inflammatory diet that's best for PCOS. Um, another thing that's really, and then there's certain principles. So we need to make sure that, you know, someone's having a range of protein. There is adequate protein in the day. Some 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 people with PCOS actually can benefit for a little bit more from a little bit of a higher protein um, than the general population because it helps with that insulin resistance and satiety. But that does not mean they need to go on a ketogenic diet. Um, or a low carb, high protein diet. That's that's not really needed. Like the difference there, I'm saying in terms of high protein is rather than having like a palm of your hand that's a meat, or uh, you know chicken or whatever, it's like a palm and a half. You know what I mean? Like it's tight. It's not really that massive, um, but it does um, influence how someone feels um, and their satiety levels. Um, it's important as well to look at you know if someone's having carbs. It's not just carbohydrates. So, for example, someone's having, I don't know, um, popcorn or like fruit, that they couple it with some protein so it slows down that digestion um, and, again, makes them feel a bit more full. Um, we also know it's a, this is also important because we know that some, whether someone has insulin resistance or to the full scale of diabetes, um, they are at increased risk of muscle degradation. There is an increased loss of muscle. And so that protein aspect needs to come into it, coupled with exercise. Um, and making sure that they someone's eating predominantly most of their energy intake during the morning or the day and less at nighttime, because that insulin um, is kind of works really well in the morning. It kind of starts to be better about an hour or two or two after waking. And slowly, 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 um, kind of gets um, less and um, 
not worsens, but yeah, reduces in its efficiency around the day and then really drops off at about 8 p.m. Um, at nighttime. So that just tells us that um, someone, you know, hopefully you're eating your main meals before that. Um, and if you're eating after 7.30, p.m., that it's more kind of protein-based. And so particularly for people who are shift workers, you know, um, that's actually really important that they are eating if they have to eat at nighttime when they're working, et cetera, that it's predominantly protein-based meals. Um, yeah. And so then there's also other considerations like what does your sleep, I'm obviously a dietitian, but what does your sleep look like? We know that circadian rhythm is actually really important for hormonal control um, and sleep tends to be altered. There is an increased risk of um, sleep changes in a negative way with PCOS and there's an increased risk of insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea. So we need to make sure that they are also being um, you know, managed or that there's regular sleep routines and um, there is enough activity in the day to, to help with sleep and um, not eating too close to sleep. So about three hours and away from sleep, from, from going to bed um, and try to as well, which we know helps to, with sleep, but also with insulin control is that at least it's a 12 hour window between finishing the last thing at nighttime and then having the next, you know, breakfast or something in the next day. That's, to be honest, a general healthy eating principle, not just really with PCOS because it helps with improving um, gut health and insulin control. There are some studies to show that that window is greater up to 14 to 16 hours and people with PCOS, um, they can benefit from that. But that really, really again, then depends on the person and what their you know situation looking like, et cetera. Sorry that yeah, I... so the exercise and the movement piece, I assume, yeah. is also around controlling um, insulin and trying to improve the insulin resistance. Exactly. Yep. So um, that's one important part, right? That's one. So insulin resistance. We also know then will help with um, the hormone side of things. We also know that movement, just like when you eat well, you nourish your body well. Moving your body in a way that you enjoy, and I've used kind of movement rather than exercise, although you know that comes from a weight stigma space, weight neutral space. Um, is really promoting to the person. They're much more likely to have better body image. They're much more likely to feel good in their body. They have better mental health. They have a great, much better um, relationship with exercise, which probably means they're going to do it for a lot longer and enjoy it. You know, so um, that that's kind of a reason why. In doing that, though, yes, it helps with weight control or, or, or prevention of weight gain. Um, What's recommended, there's no like, this is the prescription for PCOS that you should do. Um, so we need further studies on this. But it's what's recommended, um, the guidelines, are what, it really depends on whether someone wants to maintain or prevent weight gain or they want to aim for weight change or weight loss. For someone who um, is wanting to maintain their weight or prevent weight gain, it's recommended to have between 150 to 300 minutes of moderate exercise a week plus two sessions of weight training. Okay, it's actually really important. So there should be um, kind of a mixture of aerobic and weight training. Um, and what that looks like really depends on the person and what their lifestyle looks like and what they enjoy. It's also really important, um, no matter if someone's goal, is that they try to reduce their sedentary time. So um, pretty much trying every hour to two hours, trying to get up and do something. Um because we know that that's actually really important from an insulin sensitivity space. Um, in terms of, sorry, what considers what contributes to be a cardiovascular or an aerobic activity, at least it happened for at least 10 minutes and increases heart rate. 
Um, so just to go, sorry, just to go back, it's 150 minutes to 300 minutes of moderate activity. If, if it's um, a vigorous exercise, it's, it's about 75 minutes to 150, 150 minutes per week. So that's for someone who's preventing weight gain. If someone's to lose weight, it's um, at least 250 minutes of, of moderate activity per week, at least. Um, and it's uh, uh, 150 minutes of, at least of vigorous as well. Um, and then again, two additional exercise sessions and limited, um, trying to limit sedentary time as much as possible. Yeah. This might be a silly question, but can you ever get rid of it then once you've got it? Yeah. Can smart. you get rid of it? I was going to ask that. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> That's also my next question. Yeah. Is it reversible? Yeah. Unfortunately, once someone has PCOS, just like how someone once has diabetes, you're actually, you can't really ever not have it. Okay. You, there's it's no. so annoying, isn't it? Super annoying. So once you have it, you have it in saying that, you know, so I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but some people say, oh, I'm in remission of diabetes. I don't have it anymore. Well, they've actually really, they're, they're managing the diabetes so well that they don't have the symptoms anymore. But if they were to not manage it through either lifestyle or medication, it'll come back. And so that's with PCOS. Um, that's the same. So you, it'll always happen. You can't just, there's no cure for it, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and that's a reason why PCOS is important, not just for people who are of reproductive age. It goes into that postmenopausal space um, as well. And it does continue to affect health, particularly at that, you know, later in life, it's more around the cardiovascular side of things. Mm. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, you can manage it really well. Some people need life, lifestyles and all, all they need. Some people need that additional medication with it. Um, some people will have, you know, very minimal symptoms. Um, other people will have more symptoms. But yeah, there's no cure for it at this stage, unfortunately. Yeah. Does the pill affect it if they were to go on the pill? Um... Yes. So this is a whole conversation. Yes. So um most people find out they have PCOS because they probably have irregular periods, mm. normally some pelvic pain, which is not a PCOS symptom at all. It's normally endometriosis or adenomyosis. Um, anyway, that's another conversation. Um, but they, yeah, they put on the pill. They, they're there for decades, like, you know, many, many, many years. So they actually don't know what their regular period looks like. And then they come off it because they're wanting to fall pregnant or they want to stop the pill for whatever reason. And then they, the period doesn't come back. Okay. And so, um, yes, the peer, the pill can help with regulating that hormone, um, those hormones and, um, having, allowing for a regular period. Right. But actually, you know, we need to consider that you don't actually get a period on the, on your, on the oral contraceptive pill. It's a withdrawal bleed. Um, there are some people who will be able to control their PCOS and their symptoms, not through, an, they don't need the oral contraceptive pill. Lifestyle um, and a holistic management is enough. Um, some people can then also have medications if needed. Um, obviously, it depends on the person though. Maybe they need something a little bit more, that's a little bit more hefty. Maybe they want some oral contraceptives and the oral contraceptive pill is going to really work for them. There's other oral contraceptive other than the pill that might work. Um, this is where the gynecologist is an excellent resource who knows a lot about women's health and, you know, obviously about PCOS, sorry. Um, and it really depends on the person. There's a lot of, inf there's a lot of 
discussion, particularly on social media, that oral contraceptive pill is evil and bad. Um, it's not, it's it's not, it has its place, you know, but just as it has its place though for that, um, you know, the messaging about holistic care and nate, natural, et cetera, that, that, that can be good for some people, but just by itself, but there are then some people that need that additional um, help as well. So what, what, because PCOS is so different and obviously we all have different bodies in the way that we all work, what works for someone might not be the best for someone else. And so that's why you need that kind of individualized, again, holistic care to see what's best for that for you. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Can I ask with all the insulin talk, yeah. is there a link with gestational diabetes? If someone's got PCOS, are they more at risk of getting gest- gestational diabetes? Yeah, excellent question, Joe. Yes, absolutely. There is an increased risk. Just like there's an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, there is an increased risk of gestational diabetes. It does not mean that someone with PCOS is definitely going to get gestational diabetes. It just increases their risk. So that's why it's really important. Like moving during pregnancy particularly going for a walk you know it's particularly after dinner about one to two hours after dinner particularly one hour would be best um, when possible is actually really good it helps to reduce gestational diabetes risk but obviously we all know that it doesn't really like again it's not someone's fault if they get gestational diabetes some people are presenting a you know a smaller body and they're doing all the right all the eating well and moving wellness to my still might get gestational diabetes so it just they are at an increased risk Um, but it doesn't mean someone will get it, definitely. Yeah. What I'm hearing, though, is especially when you're talking about the, not even just the exercise, but the nutrition part, we're talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome, but it sounds like the advice that we have for just a healthy lifestyle and healthy diet, like how, how is it, is it really, how is it different? That's right. Yeah. So it is, it is like a very, obviously, um, healthy diet with tweaks to the person, you know, so probably a little bit, um, some people will need um, a little bit more protein than the general population. That's not everyone though. Um, But, you know, it is recommended to have fish frequently, let's say two to three times a week. And there should be um, another, another, actually another um, recommendation that's a little bit different is that general population, we need at least five servings of veggies a day, being a female, um, you know, generally speaking. But people who have PCOS probably will need about six to seven serves to help with that anti-inflammatory effect. Now, like 2% of the Australian population get that recommended five serves a day. So 2%. 2%, yeah. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, five is a lot of serves, to be fair, yeah, but yeah, still, yeah. 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 Well, mm. five serves really are one cup of salads or a fistful or raw veg or half a cup of, of cooked so if you were to get that's some, five serves. That's five serves. Is is one serve. So so oh. five <laughs> cups of salad or five cups of raw, or two and a half cups of cooked veg day. Which really, if you add some in breakfast, or you make sure that there's some in snacks and there's some in lunch and dinner, actually it can be pretty easy mm-hmm. to get if you have a planned, not planned, but you know think a little bit more about it and maybe you there's a bit more preparation involved. And you have the right things in the fridge and the cupboard, um, you know, um, to help. And generally as well, then there's the, you know, our environment, you know, what's available to us, these types of things. Um, but, yeah, so sometimes we need some supplementation. Supplementation is a whole different topic about that. But um, some people do need additional kind of antioxidants from supplements. Um, but that's probably the main thing. Still, fruits actually still really important. There's this kind of notion that fruit's really bad because it's sugary and it's fructose and it's going to make my PCOS worse. That's completely not right. 
it's fruit is high in fiber and high in antioxidants and high in other vitamins and minerals that are really good for PCOS. We probably don't want to have like heaps of watermelon and just heaps of apples and things like this. Like we want a variety of things and, um, you know, two to three serves, two to three fruits, sorry, a day. Generally speaking for someone with PCOS, probably, you know, we want to probably have any more than that, but that's what's recommended anyway. Um, but, you know, but then, I mean, these are all general recommendations. Someone might really be quite sensitive to insulin, uh, sorry, quite sensitive to fructose and they can't have, it's recommended to minimize certain fruits um, and to make sure that they're having fruits in the day and coupling with proteins, you know, um, that's where kind of these tweaks come from. Um, yeah, other things are, it's, it's actually, it's really good to try and minimize red meat. So not that you know, you don't have to go vegan or vegetarian, but um no, no more than twice a week um, and have more plant-based proteins as well is recommended. Sounds um, similar to endo kind of in its um, approach, I suppose. So a lot of, a, a lot, lot of, of things. Overlap. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of overlap actually. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap because um, they're both kind of anti, oh, sorry, um, inflammatory kind of chronic conditions um, uh, with, with the endo side, so um, PCOS is more kind of like hormonal insulin resistance kind of side. Mm-hmm. Endo is, there is some hormonal stuff in there, but it's more kind of inflammatory based. Um, and there could be also some things like on the autoimmune considerations that come into it as well, because um, it kind of comes with that. Um, and so some of, some things like thyroid, celiac, um, sensitivities to food natural food chemicals and things for endometriosis can come in but generally speaking yes that anti-inflammatory way of eating is recommended for both endo and pcos and people can have both there is definitely people who are presenting in the clinic um who would be both um have endo and pcos because they're both hormonal they're both um affected by that axis the hyper the um, pituitary gland to ovary mm-hmm. That one. <laughs> that one, yeah, the HBO. Um, but the way that they is affected is opposite. Okay. But it's still in terms of what happens to the hormones, but it um it can it can come, it can be presented in two people. And it is normally recommended, I mean, there's no real guideline for this, but it'll be recommended to have to do the endo first. Um and then with PCOS, but you can do a lot from a dietary perspective. Mm. There's a lot um, that overlaps. Um, and the reason for that, we think, yeah, that changes in the that axis um, that both of them present. But we also think as well that both of these conditions are common. And so naturally there will be an overlap in the pop in the population as well. Apologize, but thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry that I missed the beginning part of it. Um, and I can't wait to meet you and everyone else that comes to meet you and those who can't meet you will at least, you know, get to hear you now about um, all of the brilliant information that you shared with us today. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Laurie, Tamara, and Joe. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks.